You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. My name is Curtis Arnold. I serve as one of the elders here at Mill Creek. Today I'll be reading the passage. The full passage actually is Luke 22, starting with verse 39 through chapter 23, verse 25. Um, I will be reading chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. It can be found in the uh, Chairback Bible on page 829 and 830. Pilate then called together the chief priests and rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? <clears throat> I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with a loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning again for your word. Thank you for the truth that it brings, the hard truth sometimes. And Father, pray that uh, you will help us to hear diligently your word. We pray for Jonathan as he brings the word to us this morning. Change our hearts, Father, to be more like you and to love Jesus. In his name, amen. For over 20 years, athletics were a big part of my life. Early on, I played a lot of sports. I did some baseball, some football, a little bit of karate, even competed in a rec league dodgeball tournament. Pretty proud of that one. But I've always loved competing. I've enjoyed competition, and I especially find a lot of joy in beating other people. As you can imagine, I've wrestled a lot of matches. But the thing is, I can remember very few of those. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody I, I know from wrestling, and they'll bring up a match and think, I'm going to have to take your word for it, because I don't remember that at all. But do you know what I do remember more often than not? If I do remember a match, it, typically it's one of my losses. Now, those are the ones that really stick out in my mind when I think back on my wrestling career. Not that I want to remember those matches, but for some reason they just stick with you. I remember my senior year of high school uh, going to the state tournament, and I had been a, a favorite to medal all year. But my preparation that week was poor, and I ended up losing to two guys I had beaten earlier in the season. 
And I remember first time making it to the national finals. I had one of the best tournaments of my life, but in the final seconds of my final match, I made a mistake. I went for a scoring attack, and I gave up the points that lost me the match. You know, those things hurt. And the reason that they stick with me is because they matter so much. You put in all that time and preparation and and work, and then you fall short. And while I don't dwell on these losses, I find myself sometimes thinking about them. Thinking, well, if I would have just done that a little bit differently or done this instead of that, maybe things would have turned out different. Because these things matter. I think that's what can make the Christian life so hard sometimes, is it really matters. It matters far more than a wrestling event does, certainly more than a dodgeball event. It it really matters. In reality, it's life and it's death. So how do we navigate through failure and loss in the Christian life? How do we navigate when we make devastating mistakes that should exclude us from the kingdom of heaven? How are we supposed to go on as Christians? This morning, we are going to be navigating through failure. And specifically in our text, we will see how Jesus' disciples make some failures that should exclude them from the kingdom of heaven. And though Jesus' disciples make many mistakes in the book of Luke, these ones seem particularly devastating. As we come face to face with their failures, we are also consider what failure means to us. And I admit this is an uncomfortable topic this morning. I don't like to f- think about failures, and I'm sure you don't either. But it's important that we wade through this text. And I promise if you stick with me this morning, if you hold on and engage, that there will be hope at the end of the line. Because while we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses, verse 39, and we'll be going through chapter 23, verse 25. In our text this morning, there are two big ideas, so there'll be two big ideas in our sermon. First big idea is we have failed. As we hop in this morning, we are now within a few hours of Jesus' crucifixion. And things are about to get intense. Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus will be put on trial. And ultimately, he will be put to death. At the same time, Jesus' disciples will experience the worst few days of their lives. And while Jesus has been preparing them for this moment, we will see them fail miserably. Specifically, there will be three glaring failures we'll see sticking out in the text this morning. The first failure is a failure to pray. In verses 39 to 46, we find Jesus and disciples gathered on the Mount of Olives. And in verse 40, he tells his disciples this, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, just prior to our text this morning, Jesus has told his disciples that one of them, one of the 12, his closest men, is going to betray him. And he also went on to say that Peter... The most faithful of the disciples, the leader of the three, would go on to deny Jesus three times. And so he calls them to pray for what's to come, because he wants them to be ready. 
But Jesus, too, wants to prepare himself. So we see this in verses 41 and 42. It says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We are seeing here that Jesus has set in his mind, in his heart, that he is going to follow his Father's will no matter what even if that means death. Now, certainly Jesus doesn't want to die. He doesn't desire death, but he does fervently desire to follow his Father's will, even if that means he's going to suffer what is to come. And so Jesus prayed. And as he's praying, we're seeing him in agony, sweat pouring from his face. The text says that it was pouring out like blood. It was coming out so fast. Jesus was about to walk through the worst moments of his life and perhaps the worst moments that any human being could ever experience. The amount of physical agony and and spiritual warfare he was going to face is something none of us could comprehend. And he decided that rather than preparing for this moment by sleeping to rest up or getting some food in his stomach, he decided the one thing he needed was prayer. Prayer was his rest. Prayer was his strength. Here you have the perfect human being, a man without sin, a man who is holy and blameless, and he found it necessary to pray. How much more so for you and I? If Jesus needed prayer, how much more so do you and I need prayer? I know prayer can be hard to understand sometimes, and Sometimes it could feel like God is not listening. But what prayer is, at the end of the day, is is not about making requests so that God will answer them. It's about a dependency on God. It's about submitting ourselves to our Father's will. And Jesus did that perfectly. He here in the text is a model for us. The disciples, however, did not model prayer perfectly. Look with me at verses 45 and 46. It says, And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So we learn here that while Jesus is praying desperately, his disciples are sleeping. Now, the text says they're sleeping for sorrow. And I don't exactly know what that means, why they were sorrowful. They could have been sorrowful by the fact that Jesus had just told them that one of them was going to betray him. Or they could have been thinking about the things that Jesus was describing that were going to happen that week. Or maybe they were just sensing Jesus' agony and were feeling some of that same emotion. The point, however, is not why they were sorrowful. The point is that they thought that sleep was the answer to their sorrow rather than prayer. Now, it'd be easy to throw stones at the disciples here, but I have to admit that I have fallen prey to the same sort of thinking. Thinking that rest or food or an activity can give me rest instead of prayer. I'm sure there's some of us here who can relate. But I remember years ago learning this lesson all too clearly. 
I was working nights at a bakery, and I would come home just exhausted. And the first thing I wanted to do, the only thing I wanted to do was get some food and get into bed. But what I, I found is that the mornings that I stayed up a little longer and I prayed, I always woke up more rested. I don't know what God is doing in that time, but I'm certain that God was strengthening me through those prayers. I assure you, even though at times it feels like maybe God is not listening, God does hear the prayers of his people. So we need to pray. The disciples, however, chose prayerlessness. Rather than stepping up in the moment that Jesus had called them to, they decided that they needed to rest. So they failed in this moment. But that's not the only failure we'll see revealed in this text, because not only did they fail to pray, but they also failed to trust God's plan. It's the second failure we see here in the text. And we see that while Jesus is still speaking and calling his disciples to prayer, one of Jesus' predictions began to play out exactly as he said it would. As I've already pointed out, back in chapter 22, Jesus told the twelve that one of them is getting ready to betray him. And now that man is about to reveal himself. It says in verse 47 and 48, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I ironically here, a kiss is a sign of fellowship, a sign of devotion. But now it's being used as a sign of betrayal to signal that Jesus is the one they're looking for. Now, I'm sure we could spend a lot of time talking about the failures of Judas. Take a whole other sermon to talk about that. But Luke's focus is not actually on Judas here in the text. Throughout his, his gospel, he spends really very little time talking about Jesus, Judas. Instead, he turns his attention directly back to the other 11. It says this in verse 49 to 50. And when those who were around him saw what followed, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. As the disciples realize what's happening, that Jesus is about to be rested, they think, it's time to fight. It's time to go to war. This is what we've been waiting for. And this is about to turn into an all-out melee as they brandish their swords and one of them cuts off the ear of the high priest's servants. But Jesus very quickly intervenes and stops the moment. He says, no more of this. Jesus even picks up that ear that was cut off and heals the high priest's servant. And once again, what we're seeing is the disciples not following after the example of Jesus. Jesus is here loving his enemies, even healing his enemies, and his disciples are ready for battle. In actuality, his disciples look far more like Jesus' enemies than they do like Jesus. These enemies who came with swords and clubs, a mob ready to fight and take Jesus prisoner. The problem with the disciples is they don't actually trust God's plan. Jesus has told them exactly what is going to happen. He, he told them that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be, be, be beaten, and eventually killed. But they think, Jesus, you must have it wrong. 
That's not how things are supposed to go down. We're going to fight and we'll win this battle. That's how things are going to go down. Because they didn't trust God's plan. And certainly God's plan at times is very difficult. He tells us to do things that are contrary to our nature, especially when we're facing opposition. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us to be last rather than first. Things that work completely against our nature. And sure, these things sound easy in concept at times, but when you're actually faced with opposition, when your oppressors are standing right in front of your face, it becomes much more difficult. Someone is mocking you, ridiculing your face. When somebody is pushing evil doctrine that affects your family, your children, and your livelihood, loving your enemies becomes so difficult. But that's God's plan. That's what Jesus has in mind for you and I. And though our instincts tell us to fight, to push back, Jesus has told us to love our enemies. And certainly we should stand up for the truth. We're called to stand up for the truth in love and not use the tactics of those around us who mock and ridicule and insult. Jesus came with love. But Jesus' disciples didn't trust that plan. They thought their plan was better. So they failed to stand up and trust Jesus as they were supposed to. And though this feels like a devastating failure to not trust God's plan, there's an even greater failure coming. Failure number two is a failure to stand firm in Jesus. Now as Jesus is arrested under the cover of darkness, he is taken to the house of the high priest. And we see Peter following close behind at a distance. Now Luke doesn't tell us where the other 11 are, but Peter actually steps up and and follows after his Savior, his Lord. And we could blame Peter for what is to come and uh, for the mistake that he is about to make, but I want to point out that Peter is just a reflection of the other 11 disciples who should have also been standing up. Nevertheless, we find Peter here making his way into the courtyard of the high priest where he sits down next to a fire. Now, it's unclear what Peter thinks he's going to do. Maybe he's just trying to figure out what's going to happen to Jesus. Maybe he thinks in the moment he'll come up with a plan to to save his, his Lord and Savior. But as he's sitting there thinking, he doesn't have time to do anything because he is spotted by the crowd. Each of them are able to recognize that Peter is obviously one of the men who's been following Jesus. Number one, he's a Galilean, which would have made him look fairly identical to Jesus, but also all week during the Passover, he's been following right next to Jesus. So clearly he is one of his followers. So very easily they're able to spot him. And as they spot him, Peter replies, I don't know him. Three times Peter is accused. And three times, Peter denies Jesus. Now, you have to imagine the sort of pressure that Peter was under. The confusion that was going on in this moment as Jesus, this miracle worker, is arrested and taken prisoner. None of it would have made sense. And I'm sure Peter is just responding in the moment to what is going on. In many ways, Peter is like 
the rooster that we will hear crow here in a minute, who puffs out his chest and thinks, I've got this bold voice, but when danger comes, he cowers. But as Peter is sitting there trying to figure out the, the situation, we learn that as the rooster crows, Peter actually locks eyes with Jesus. Just imagine how piercing that must have felt. Peter locking eyes with Jesus, the man that he said he would give his life to, the man that he said that he would follow into prison and to death. He is now just denied three times. In that moment, Peter realized that exactly what Jesus said would happen has now come true. Three times he has denied Jesus. You know, Peter's failure here was not a momentary lapse of faith. What we're seeing in the text is that this is a progression. It started when they failed to pray. It started when they failed to trust God's plan. But at the heart of it, embedded in these failures we see in the text, is the failure to believe that Jesus actually needed to die for their sins. They thought if, if Jesus, this Messiah, could come and just win some battles, if they, he could just conquer their worldly enemies, then they would be saved from all of their problems. But they didn't realize that their real problem was not outside. It was inside. It was the fact that they were sinners. It's the fact that they did not actually trust the one that they were following fact that they had failed to live according to God's design. And though you may be here this morning thinking, I don't relate to any of these failures in the text. I want to assure you this morning that each and every one of us have failed to live according to God's design. That's what sin is at the end of the day. It's a failure to live the way God has created us to live. Each and every one of us have failed. We see that here in our text, but we see it all throughout Scripture, that all of us are sinners, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much good you think you have done, each and every one of us have failed. That's the uncomfortable truth that we are confronted with here this morning. And we're going to have to leave that truth where it is for right now. Because now our text moves forward. Now we set our sights beyond the failures of our disciples and set our sights on Jesus. So move with me to our second big idea in our text here this morning. Jesus has succeeded. As we turn our sights away from the disciples and on to Jesus... We will see here as we move throughout the rest of the text that while his disciples failed, Jesus remained faithful. Not just mostly faithful, but perfectly faithful. And we will see in the text three ways that Jesus exhibits perfect faith. And while we have a lot of text left, we're going to move through this very quickly because I want to show you here this morning why Jesus' success matters to you. Let's move to the first way that Jesus exhibits perfect faith. Jesus exhibits perfect faith by having patience in suffering. Look with me what it says in verses 63 and 64. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. 
They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now the irony here is that while these men are abusing Jesus, demanding that he prophesy, they are actually fulfilling things that Jesus prophesied. Jesus said that I will be taken before sinful men, I will be mocked and abused. All of this was supposed to happen. But that doesn't necessarily make it any easier, especially when you consider who Jesus is. I mean, not only is Jesus the perfect, righteous one, Jesus also has the power to put the situation to an end in a moment. Jesus could call down an armies of angels to fight on his behalf. And even more than that, Jesus could have taken up his divinity and sent these men cowering into their graves. Jesus had that power, but he was patient in suffering. He was patient knowing that this was God's plan that laid behind him. He was confident that no matter what came, he was going to follow the will of God. And so he exhibited perfect faith in his suffering because Jesus was patient. As we move forward, things are going to get even worse for the Lord Jesus. But we also see that his faith will continue. Because while Jesus is enduring this tough suffering, we also see him hoping in the kingdom. This is the second way that Jesus exhibited perfect faith. Now after being mistreated in the courtyard, Jesus is then taken to the the house of the high priest. And we see him on trial in what we can only describe as a mockery of justice. Rather than following the biblical procedures to prove that Jesus was guilty, These men lobby false accusations, their main one being that Jesus has falsely called himself the Christ. Now, Christ is a Greek word that means Messiah, which is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. This term Christ was a title given to a prophetic king in scripture who is to come to save God's people. Now, when Jesus' ministry began, the religious leaders had already predetermined that Jesus was not, in fact, the Christ. They didn't care about the the evidence. They didn't care about the miracles. They only cared that he didn't fit the picture of what they thought the Messiah should look like. So we see in this trial that they're actually trying to set Jesus up and make him look guilty. They ask him the question, are you the Christ? Basically, they think they've backed Jesus into a corner. Because if he says that he is the Christ, and they've already determined that he can't be the Christ, then he's a liar and a blasphemer, and he needs to be put to death. But if he says he's not the Christ, then they would crucify him as a false messiah. Somebody came speaking with authority and prophetically who was leading the people astray. They think they've got Jesus backed into a corner. Let's see how this exchange goes down in verses 67 to 30, 71. It says, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he answered them, you say that I am. Then he said, Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. 
You know, something worth pointing out, uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, he never actually claims to be the Christ. Seems a little strange, but what Jesus does throughout his ministry and what we're seeing in the book of Luke is that he is always pointing people back to Scripture. Let the Bible tell you if I am the Christ or not. Jesus doesn't intend for them to trust his own testimony without first trusting Scripture. But the religious leaders don't trust Scripture. Even though they're the ones who are supposed to step up and preach the testimony of God's Word, they have decided that their words are better. So they believe that Jesus is a sinner. But Jesus, even though he doesn't call himself the Christ, is also very clear on who he is. Jesus says in the text that he will be seated at the right hand of power of God. This can be mistaken as nothing else as a claim of Jesus being the Son of God. And the religious leaders immediately know what he's claiming. And if you think that they're upset that Jesus is being called the Christ, certainly they are furious that Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of God. This claim here would have been an immediate death sentence. No questions asked. Jesus needs to die. And Jesus knew that. He didn't make a mistake in his speech. Jesus knew that this would mean his death. But Jesus' hope was not here on earth. Jesus' hope was in the kingdom of heaven. He was looking forward beyond his suffering, beyond his death, beyond the mocking to the time that he would be seated at the right hand of the throne on high. Jesus trusted that even though he was going to die, he would reign in heaven. That is perfect faith that we see from Jesus exhibited in the text. But the text goes on because Jesus will continue to exhibit that perfect faith See, he is once again accused falsely of being a false Messiah, which moves us to our third exhibition of faith here in the text. Number three is innocence before man. Now, at this point in the text, the religious leaders have already determined that Jesus needs to die. The problem is they don't actually have the authority to put Jesus to death. You see, because the Roman government was in charge, they would have to appeal to the Roman authorities. So they decide to do just that. We see here that they first bring Jesus before a man named Pontius Pilate, who was the authority in Jerusalem. And Pilate very quickly dismisses their claims. Very quickly, he's able to see through this facade and see that they just want to use him to put Jesus to death, even though he's innocent. Pilate determines this man is not guilty. But the religious leaders are not ready to give up yet. They very conveniently mention at this time that Jesus is from Galilee, which meant that Jesus was not actually under Pilate's authority. He was under authority of a man named King Herod. So now Pilate is forced to bring Jesus to Herod. Once again, they make these false accusations, and King Herod basically treats this like a joke. He first starts by demanding that Jesus perform miracles like there's some sort of card trick. When Jesus remains silent, he mocks him, but ultimately determines that Jesus is not guilty. Two times now, Jesus has been declared innocent, not worthy of death, not worthy of condemnation. 
but the religious leaders are not ready to give up yet. They have one more latched effort, and they stir up the crowd, demanding that Pilate release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. We learn here in the text that Barabbas is a convicted criminal, a man guilty of insurrection and even murder, which meant he was not just a threat to the Roman Empire, he was also a threat to the Jewish people. Nevertheless, the crowd cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Over and over and over again, we are seeing Jesus is innocent. Jesus is truly innocent before man. And as Jesus goes to the cross in the next episode of our text, we will see that Jesus not only needs to prove his innocence before man, he also needs to prove his innocence before God. And that may sound obvious for a person like Jesus, but I want to remind you this morning that if Jesus had committed one single sin throughout his lifetime, even the smallest conviction against God, He would have died and saved that. But Jesus trusted God because he truly was innocent. And while Barabbas, a man guilty, convicted of the most heinous of crimes, went free, Jesus is condemned to be crucified. An innocent man dies while a sinful man goes free. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Jesus died to save sinners. And that brings us back to that uncomfortable truth here this morning. Each and every one of us have failed. Each and every one of us are sinners. There is no one in this room who have lived perfectly according to God's design. You have failed. One thing I learned in my athletic career is there's no going back. You can't go back and fix your, your past mistakes. Certainly you can learn from them, you can grow from them, you can do it differently next time. But once you lose, you lose. There's no changing your record. There's no going back and making it right. There is no fixing your past mistakes. Sin is sin, no matter how much right you think you do. Sin is sin, no matter how much you try to make up for it. Failure is failure, no matter what. But Jesus died for sinners. Listen to the testimony of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of all of us. Church, you can't go back. But Jesus went forward. He went forward through suffering. He went forward through mocking. He went forward through false accusations. He went forward through death. Carrying 
your failures. Jesus went forward because we cannot go back. Jesus went forward because there is nothing that we can do to make our sins right. Jesus died for sinners. Christian, I I don't know what you're carrying this morning. I don't know what failure is weighing you down. I don't know what sin you have committed. But I am certain this morning that Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died for every piece of brokenness, every failure, no matter how vile it feels. Jesus died for that. And you don't have to carry that failure any longer because Jesus died for sinners. I want you to know here this morning nothing you can do to overcome what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died for all of it. If you're here this morning and you're thinking that you can do it on your own, if you think that you are faithful enough, that you are good enough, there's nothing that you can do to be right before God except to respond to Jesus. But I assure you, if you give yourself to Jesus here this morning, no matter what you've done, he will forgive you. Because Jesus died for you. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of Christ. I want to leave you with this verse this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we may become the righteousness of God. Surely we can put our hope in that this morning. That even though we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, though we have failed you in every way, though we have walked completely into sin and brokenness, you have succeeded. You have succeeded in carrying our sorrows, in carrying our grief, our brokenness, every sin you have succeeded. Jesus, let our hope be in you this morning. Let our hope be that nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love. Jesus, our hope is in you. Give us the strength to walk faithfully. In your holy name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.